0: Yes, well, um, uh, earlier on I I defined one of the consequences of the disappearance from the popular mind of any sense of the supernatural, the loss of the Christian awareness of the the part one plays in a great cosmic drama Um, the result of this of course is that since overall meaning and purpose can't be derived from the objective epic of human destiny, they have to be derived from the individual's own personal identity as a product of the natural order. Well, I now want to focus your attention on another aspect of this servitude to the natural, this servitude to nature. And I'm going to recall a memorable experience I had right back in 1961 on the occasion of my first visit to the United States. I'd had some lecturing engagements in Detroit and I was due to go to the headquarters of a a book club in Arkansas. And I took a night train from Detroit to St. Louis where I had to change for the San Francisco line. All these places, things have disappeared now. The stations, the lines, a lot, most of them anyway. Anyway, most of the journey has faded from my memory but one thing sticks vividly in the mind. The memory of eating breakfast in the early morning as we crossed the Mississippi. Now an Englishman's idea of a river is one thing and an American's is another. The sheer magnitude of the Mississippi I found overwhelming. This enormous expanse of of rolling brown water. particularly impressive because the, the train moves just a few yards above it. The sheer magnitude of the Mississippi. Um, this enormous expanse of rolling brown water, so vast that the crawling train, sneaking its way across the bridge, seemed very afraid of thing indeed. I mean, I'd just gone across the Atlantic um, in the Queen Mary, I believe it was, in, in a violent storm, but uh, um, although one was thrown up and, and down and, uh, um, and all that, um, one never felt... Uh, quite so small in the presence of the vast as on this uh, little train snaking across the Mississippi well the World River acquired a fresh uh, dimension for me Uh, it was to stay with me and some years later well, many years later four or five years later I wrote a book on T.S. Eliot's four quartets now Eliot of course was brought up in St. Louis and there could be no doubt about what he was thinking of when he pictured his river in the dry salvages. i just quote a few lines. I do not know much about gods, but I think that the river is a strong brown god, sullen, untamed and intractable, patient to some degree, at first recognized as a frontier, useful, untrustworthy as a surveyor of commerce, Then only a problem confronting the builder of bridges. The problem once solved, the brown god is almost forgotten by the dwellers in cities. Ever, however, implacable, keeping his seasons and rages, destroyer, reminder of what men men choose to forget. Well, I, I want to put that memory of the river and that quotation alongside another one. I remember this in 1977 going to the States and having um, one of those rare flights when, in fact, one saw a lot of the terrain um, underneath one's plane. Um, This was going from New New York down to Nashville, Tennessee. And I was absolutely overwhelmed by an impression of America, which I suppose you can only get from the air, and that was of the enormous extent of the forestation, the sheer magnitude of the forested areas and again this oddly absurd thinness and frailty by comparison of the network of roads that indicate man's seemingly rather tentative grip on the great areas of natural growth. The sheer magnitude of river and forest. Well, I suppose America has the most advanced, highly technological urban civilization in human history, and yet here was a visitor from Europe struck by the Tenuousness of civilized man's grip on the forces of nature, it gave me pause for thought. after all, our civilization has been built by the conquest and taming of nature. We've tamed the face of the earth by constructing certain material frameworks and networks for our protection and convenience by frameworks, I mean the houses that shelter us, the villages, the cities in which we have established communal life. By networks, I mean those systems of connecting pipes and wires for water, gas, sewage disposal, power, telephone, and so on, and those linkages provided by roads and, and airports. This taming of the jungle has increased our freedom. We don't have to spend time fetching water from a spring or fuel from a wood. Civilization, by imposing a vast material framework and a vast material network on the natural order, has given us the freedom to travel, study, develop arts and sciences, and in spite of all the tangle of regulations we have to submit ourselves to whenever we use roads or airports or gas taps or electricity points, we don't consider that our freedom is thereby in any degree lessened. Nor do we find rebellious spirits claiming that the imposition of these material frameworks and networks has been a misfortune for the human race. I make this point because our civilization, in its moral and cultural, as well as in its material aspects, has been built by the imposition of frameworks and networks to conquer and tame the natural, and thereby grant us a freedom we should otherwise lack. Is not the framework of the law within which we live socially comparable to the material framework of house and village and city? Are not the frameworks of education and welfare which safeguard us socially and morally comparable to the networks of roads and pipes and wires which safeguard us physically and give us freedom to attend to matters other than the perpetual immediate search for life's physical necessities? Well, there's nothing remarkable about this comparison. The social and moral upbringing of the young in the family mirrors the process of taming nature, which we have seen operative in the wider field of public progress from jungle to city. This is true whether you're teaching your child to walk, to eat decently, or to make hygienic use of a lavatory. Indeed, Eliot's poem, which I quoted goes on to make this point. Having pictured the appalling power of the river, the strong brown god, its potential even after taming at any moment to rage or destroy, he adds, the river is within us. There is the same natural force within us that must be tamed as the outer world of nature has been tamed and the taming of the natural within us is just as much a matter of imposing frameworks and networks as is the taming of the natural without us. Nurturing the young morally or socially means introducing them to a framework of moral principles, a network of accepted practical restraints, inhibitions and courtesies that ease social communication as the road or the telephone eases physical physical communication. Now I said at the beginning that secularism was based on a philosophy of naturalism, a grounding of value and meaning in the untranscended natural order. I would now add that secularism has bred a notion of progress and development that takes its pattern from the way natural things grow, a flower, a tree, a river, a forest, but which ignores the way nature has been tamed and civilization built for this is the root from which fashionable notions of self-cultivation and self-expression derive. Our material civilization has been made by the conquest and taming of the natural, by the imposition upon the natural frameworks and networks which give us homes, cities, water, taps, telephones. Our civilization in its moral, social and cultural aspects has been, by, been built by the imposition upon the natural of of frameworks and networks which give us the family, the state, the nation, our system of justice, our moral codes, our culture, our achievements in science and technology. And yet, after centuries of civilizing by restraint and regulation in relation to principle and code, we suddenly find about us influential mentors who believe and teach that individual and mental progress depend not on accommodating human beings to the great frameworks of established morality, justice, order, and culture, but in asserting the self rebelliously against every form and formulation, principle, and and rule on the assumption that value and meaning derive from something that springs up spontaneously within the untutored, indisciplined ego. For no make no mistake about it. this is the anarchic philosophy which possesses possesses is the word I think the minds of many who mould the minds of future generations in the school classroom or in the television studio. Let me quote uh, an interesting article I took I took this actually from from the New York Times. We really do believe that all human beings have a natural telos towards becoming flowers, not weeds or poison ivy, and that aggregates of human beings have a natural (coughs) predisposition to arrange themselves into gardens, not jungles or garbage heaps. This sublime and noble faith we may call the religion of liberal humanism. It is the dominant spiritual and intellectual orthodoxy in America today. Indeed, despite all our chatter about the separation of church and state, one can even say it is the official religion of American society today, as against which all other religions can be criticized as divisive and parochial. End of quote. There is one thing on which Christians see eye to eye with those in the past who have pushed back the frontiers of barbarism and given us our civilization. It is that progress depends on conquering the natural, taming the great brown god, whether it is the flooding river without us or the flow of appetite and passion within us. It is, historically speaking, both a very old and a very new idea that instead of channeling and bridging the strong, strong brown God, we should fall down and worship him. It is a pre-civilizational notion, and I am afraid, a post-civilizational notion. The Christian, in accepting the reality of the supernatural, allows to the natural the status of that which has to be strained, disciplined and controlled. In so doing, he is on the side of civilization and culture. The contemporary secularist, insofar as he subscribes to the fashionable code of rejecting all disciplines and restraints in the interests of supposed unfettered self-expression, is on the side of barbarism. He is preaching a return to the jungle. He is preaching slavery to nature and he is getting it through addiction to the needle and the bottle. It is painfully ironic that the great exponents of doing your own thing so often end up in abject servitude to drugs that numb the mind and destroy the body. This is nature's revenge. Living evidence that without or within you will either tame nature or be tamed by her. The strong brown God remains implacable. Only the power of the Holy Spirit can deal with him. Man must bow to the supernatural or he will bow to the natural. Milton understood this. In Paradise Lost, once Eve has eaten of the forbidden tree, she turns to the tree in adoration. Milton's Adam and Eve, in their state of innocence, worship God daily. But once Eve has snatched the apple, she becomes a worshipper of the tree itself and promises it a daily due of praise. O sovereign, virtuous, precious of all trees in paradise, she said. Her first words of praise hint at the enormity of what she has done. For her words glorifying the precious tree and the fruit that hangs on it offered free to all are a ghastly parody of hymns to the sacred tree of the cross. And this parody of Christian worship, here addressed to the growth of nature, is directly in line with philosophical positions adopted today in our own country as well as in the USA from which I started my talk. So Eve, leaving the tree to return to Adam, first genuflex before it. I suggest that this is the root of the current value system of self-cultivation and self-expression. <coughs> it has been ably analysed by Paul Witz. Paul Witz ought to be right over here. He's a professor of psychology at New York University who has um, published a series of books. One of them called Psychology um, as Religion the Cult of Self-Worship. He shows how the young... Of course, he's terrifically at war with his colleagues... But uh, he, he's uh, made a great impact. He shows how the young are brought up to conceive of life not as presenting them with moral and cultural frameworks to which they must adapt themselves, but as presenting them with moral and cultural frameworks that have to be destroyed in the name of self-fulfillment. For a picture of life has been painted which insists that personal development and personal fulfillment are a matter of asserting the indisciplined ego and indulging its whims with scorn for traditional restraints and established mores. This is the doctrine of selfism. Progress is envisaged in terms of the continuing, indefinite expansion of a process of personal liberation from historically imposed conventions and restrictions. Here, indeed, the confrontation between secularist and Christian thinking is one of total antagonism. For the moral keynote of Christianity is obedience. From the testing of Abram with Isaac to the angelic annunciation to the Virgin Mary, from God's calling to Noah to our Lord's calling of St. Peter, the human role has been represented as that of obedience. God calls and man obeys. The divine process of saving man from sin and death was initiated when the Virgin Mary said, Be it unto me according to thy word a total surrender of the human spirit, the human mind, the human body, to the will of God. Yet, the notion of obedience is now totally discredited in many fields of thought and action. A notion of worthwhile human behavior has been cultivated that centers it not in submission to demands, but in the casting off of all external claims. The public has been fed for years on the modern myth of escalating emancipation. This is one of those theories which Christians must tackle in the urgent task of demythologizing contemporary secularism. Escalating emancipation presents every step forward in the intellectual, the social or the political field as a movement in a universal progress of emanci- process of emancipation from slaver, slavery. Labour is being freed from slavery to capitalist, women from servitude to men, children from the tyranny of pedagogues, students from rigid academic disciplines, citizens from the constraints of poverty, believers from the chains of dogma, artists from the fetters of censorship, women from the tyranny of ovulation, homosexuals from laws against perversion, couples from the prison of lifelong marriage, pregnant women from consequent labour. Now, the fact that some of these liberations were highly desirable has encouraged the notion that all of them must be. Indeed, that progress consists in getting rid of restrictions. It is based on the assumption that we have progressed not by disciplining the unregenerate ego, but by giving it its fling. It is also based on the astounding presupposition that the human spirit has been shackled throughout history, bogged down in a morass of inhibitions. The past which stretches out behind is vaguely conceived of as one of increasing blackness. On the postulate of ever-spreading emancipation, that must surely be the picture. But if it is indeed so, then how on earth did men manage to build, to write, to paint, to compose, to sculpt the artistic masterpieces that these centuries of darkness left behind? If individuality was so clogged and strangled in the days before Marx and Freud had pointed the way to social and personal fulfillment, how come the great cathedrals, the magnificent books, the breathtaking paintings, not to mention, from further back in the ages of pre-liberational paralysis, the invention of fire, of the wheel, of human language itself. You must not mistake me. I am not wishing to deny the great benefits that have been gained in our countries during the last hundred years in freeing men and women from servile toil, from economic exploitation and from social injustice. But the myth of escalating emancipation assumes that there is no ceiling to such processes of amelioration, that the business of dismantling past restrictions can go on indefinitely, but it can't. Even in the matter of freeing yourself from clothing, there is a final stage. If you you try to divest yourself further, you will have to start tearing your hair out or stripping off your skin. This is the trouble with the myth of escalating emancipation. If we consider soberly what life will become like, were we to have a future of cumulative moral and social de-restrictions comparable to those that have transformed life in the last two decades, we can only receive, foresee a return to the jungle. We have had simulated acts of sodomy on the London stage, The next stage in enlightened enlightened progress, presumably, is to allow it on the London bus. But, of course, there is a breaking point which makes nonsense of the notion that human beings can go on casting off fetters, inhibitions and restrictions indefinitely. Sooner or later, there won't be enough inhibitions to go around. You can't break out unless you're held in. The myth of escalating emancipation is based on the fallacy of serial thinking. Perhaps you've heard the old story about the statistical inquiry into the use of cars by people commuting daily into London. The inquiry showed that far from getting more economical, the use of cars was getting less economical, in that year by year fewer and fewer drivers were carrying passengers. I don't know what the exact figures were, but when this was expressed as a graph it showed that something like 1.8 people per car had shrunk over so many years to 1.3 people per car and a wit pointed out that if the present trend continued in 10 years time one in every five cars going into London would have no one in it at all really. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the fallacy of serial thinking it was illustrated by delightful uh, story of C.S. Lewis—I've uh, forgotten—in one of the books, he uh, told the story of the Irishman who was convinced by a persuasive salesman that the purchase of a new stove would cut his fuel consumption by half. So he ordered two on the assumption. (Laughter) <laughs> <laughs> Lewis actually has an essay in which he notes how in our age people are praised for being creative, spontaneous, breaking fetters, bursting bonds, being themselves. And then he goes on to show how New Testament thinking runs in exactly the opposite direction. Men and women have to be creaturely imitative. There is no room... For the current conception of being yourself, I'm now quoting Lewis, Our whole destiny seems to lie in the opposite direction, in being as little as possible ourselves, in acquiring a fragrance that is not our own but borrowed, in becoming clean mirrors filled with with the image of a face that is not ours. Well, it's an ironical fact that the noisy exponents of self-liberation often end up in servitude to addiction. And I'll draw attention to another irony. It is the fact that the, in, there are circumstances in which the great prophets of defying convention and regulation and acting creatively lay aside their principles. Have you ever watched a great prophet of self-liberation liberation, when he goes to an airport? Does he say, watch me, no following the crowd for me, I'm going to do my own thing? Not on your life. He lines up in the queue for tickets as meekly as you you or I. He files obediently through the security checks, responding instantly to probes or questions. He follows directions. He sits patiently in a row in the departure lounge, waiting submissively to be told what to do. Have you ever seen anything more like a Victorian school classroom than an airport departure (laughs) van? Everybody waiting meekly to receive instructions from teacher. Passengers with seats 1 to 20 proceed now to gate A. And the rebellious exponent of doing your own thing consults his ticket as meekly as you or I do to see whether he's yet permitted to file out. Please, teacher, may I go now? Yes, Johnny, you may go now. Be a good boy. Why do we all accept the outmoded disciplines of an authoritarian past when we travel by air? Because the safety of our own skins is at stake. This is not a case of possible damage to mind or soul. This is an area where physical well-being is at risk. So we'll put up with all the regulations you choose to impose if they ensure that we can travel in safety. It's nonsense to pretend that in the modern world regulation, discipline and obedience to authority are outmoded. Ask people who work in air traffic control or space travel control or a hospital operating theatre about that. You and I are jolly glad to know when we put our precious bodies into the care of an airline that no traffic controller is going to liberate himself from established code and rule and discover himself anew when he ought to be talking down our plane. And we're jolly glad to know too when we put our precious bodies into the care of a hospital that the surgeon can be trusted not to start defying code and formula and instead doing his own thing creatively with a scalpel. (laughs) Well, these little instances of the way disciplines are imposed to safeguard human welfare are significant. We should be horrified if those we love tried to bypass them Yet one of the consequences of secularized thinking has been to drive a wedge between the call to love and the demands of rational discipline. The church itself has been infected by this sloppiness. There's a sentimental theology about which has invented a new God. It insists that he's a God of love and implies that it is therefore his eternal concern that a thumping good time should be had by all. (laughs) Are we living in a society torn by factions and dissensions over questions of practice and principle whose roots reach down to the depths where angel and demon are locked in conflict? A word with this God of infinite forbearance and we shall be granted the dubious capacity to face all comers with the same inscrutably acquiescent grin. Are we worried about this hypocrisy or that dishonesty? About this injustice or that treachery? Five minutes of prayer to this many-sided God and we shall be able to rejoice indiscriminately with the sinner and the saint. We shall be able to spread the family spirit of Christian charity like a blanket over every disloyalty and infidelity conceived in hell and planted in men's hearts. So runs the sentimental creed. Because this God loves all men equally, therefore we must live in agreement with all men smiling indulgently upon every vanity and betrayal. Because this God is a God of mercy, we must pretend that sins have not been committed, that evils under our own noses do not exist. Well, we are told to love our neighbours as ourselves, but when our Lord was pressed about what this meant, of course, he told the story of the Good Samaritan, who broke his journey to help a poor fellow who had been mugged and beaten up and left Mm. wounded. The Samaritan had to clean and bandage the fellow's wounds, then get him to an inn where he could be booked in and looked after at the Samaritan's expense. The whole thing was a rather laborious business, and it's notable that our Lord should have chosen an event so awkward and so arduous to illustrate what love is like in action. It is practical, It is certainly not just sentimental. I suppose you know the updated version of the Good Samaritan parable where the priest comes by and passes by on the other side and then the Levite comes and takes a look at the body and then himself moves on. And finally the social worker comes. He stops, looks down at the wounded traveler and says, The man who did this needs help. (laughs) Studier <laughs> the it? <laughs> Love of our fellows requires us to answer their urgent needs. Love cannot therefore be walled off from the area where restraints, disciplines, and duties obtain. When a man is suffering from cancer, the love that he needs is the love that takes a knife to his inside. When a man is suffering from gangrene, the love that he needs is the love that soars off his foot. Sentiment will be out of place in the operating theatre. It is a place of disinfected atmosphere, gloved hands, masked faces, suppressed feelings, terse commands, disciplined obedience, a place where brains concentrate and hands work hard. But it is the only place where human love can answer the needs of many a suffering invalid. And the more we love our near ones, the firmer we shall be in insisting that they submit themselves to the regimens and disciplines, and if necessary, even surgery, which medical expertise advises. It's illuminating to ponder the operation of love in the care of our bodies. So often it involves treatments we are loath to undergo. Who wants to have a piece cut out of his inside? Who wants to be forbidden this or that tasty food or or drink? Who wants to lie all night on a board instead of a sinking mattress? Yet these may be the impositions of true love. Think what uh, truly loving wives have been saying to their husbands in numberless homes this very day. No. You can't have bacon and eggs for breakfast. There is no good for you at all with your heart condition. Remember what the doctor said. No, 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 you can't have a drink. I've been firmly instructed to forbid it. In fact, I've thrown the last bottle away. No, no, you mustn't eat that chocolate. Your sugar intake today has been too high already. No, 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 in the name of love. What is this? Surely it belongs to a past age, an age of outmoded moral dogmatism and authoritarianism. Someone sent me a survey of some recent Christian books of sex education. Actually, they were from America. They may not be as bad over here. Many of them supposed to be specifically Christian. And the one thing they seem to be all agreed about is that love can never say no. Love could never be so crude. We have no right, it appears, to tell the next generation, don't do that, it isn't good for you. If they feel inclined to experiment with premature sex play, intercourse, homosexual practices and so on, it appears that we must restrain any urge to speak of a difference between good and evil. I quote from a supposedly Christian book, quote, the important thing about petting is to be honest and responsible. Quote, Is it honest? Anyway, how do you cuddle and kiss dishonestly? (laughs) Do you squeeze her waist with the left hand, squash your face against hers, keep one eye half open to ensure that hers are closed and swing round your right hand to rival her (laughs) handbag? Honest (laughs) This is honest. (laughs) I am saying I am saying that it is utterly dishonest to use the word honest in a context where it cannot apply. Simply for the purpose of getting the nice feelings that go with the word honest. If someone asked my advice about a business deal and I said the important thing was to be honest over it, that would be fair enough. Such a deal could be honest or dishonest. But if someone asked my advice about how many steaks he ought to eat, it would be evasive of me to reply that he should eat as many as he felt like, provided he ate them honestly. (laughs) Honesty is not at issue. Lying, be, lying is one thing and gluttony is another thing. Eating steak, steak till you burst will be disastrous even if a falsehood never passes your lips. <laughs> Yet I find an awful lot of nonsense talked about honesty in sexual relationship where honest people will talk about chastity or purity. And the word responsible, you see, honesty and responsibly, is used just with the same sort of vagueness. Here's more advice from a supposedly Christian book. Quote, Whether or not a woman will have an abortion is often a matter of what she believes to be the actual beginning of life. You have to make up your own mind on this issue, and we believe it is important for you to seek differing opinions. Well, now, such books as these spend so much space Telling their readers you must make up your mind about this or that, but it seems to me to be sheer commercial dishonesty to pass them off as books of guidance. <laughs> After all, if you want guidance, you want guidance, not to be told to make your own mind up. <laughs> if I bought a new cookbook and in place of recipes and instructions for s- cooking, it told me to make my own choice of ingredients <laughs> and <laughs> color, I should feel that I'd been swindled. <laughs> The important thing is not to put this or that ingredient in, but to mix the stuff honestly and (laughs) responsibly. Well, I, I suggest that too much of the output of sex education literature is a mass instrument of commercial embezzlement, largely telling readers nothing except to do whatever they feel like, and camouflaging this advice in an empty rhetoric about honesty, responsibility, and not hurting people. I'm worried about these ethics in the field of sex education. This flight from all law and commandment. Suppose the please-yourself thing invades the whole field of care for others. What about those loving wives looking after their husbands? Will they have to forget to say, no, no, no? John, I don't believe in moral absolutes. The doctor's prohibition of alcohol was far too rigid, I thought. There's a bottle of whiskey here. You must choose for yourself. The important thing is that if you do drink it, you drink it honestly and responsibly. (laughs) Then, if necessary, we can have you picked up and carried off to the mortuary by honest, responsible morticians. (laughs) Uh, There is a diabolical conspiracy at work in the Western world. Its aim is to decompose the fabric of morality and civilization. We know that it is diabolical from the fact that its first postulate is that obedience to God's law is nonsense. You must make your own mind up. You must do whatever your desires and whims dictate. It was the devil's philosophy. God told Abraham what to do and he did it. He told Noah what to do and Jonah what to do and they did it. God told Elijah and a dozen other prophets what to do and they got busy. It was the same, of course, with the disciples. The New Testament is all about people to whom our Lord said, Follow me, and they immediately followed. About people to whom our Lord said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, and off they went. Yet now, after 2,000 years of Christianity being preached as a religion of doing what God tells you to do, there are mentors who would turn it into a religion of doing what you feel like. And what is the end product of this? Do whatever you feel like code. Practiced in millions of homes. Practiced by couples who treat marriage as disposable. Practiced by parents who deny their children the blessings of discipline. Taught by teachers and media men who treat human morality as a great fun free for all. What is the end product of this? Well, I had years of experience myself of college students and had my fair share of listening to the troubles of damaged neurotic young people, unsure of themselves on the edge of despair, paralyzed by inability to work or make friends. And in nine cases out of ten, perhaps in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred, there was a broken home in the background. Someone, father or mother or both, had decided that the marriage had failed, had broken out of the supposed bondage, opted for self-fulfillment in a new partnership. They had made their own choice and done it in the name of love. And sometimes I went home in the evening after an encounter with some miserably burdened young man or woman, and then I picked up a journal, a Christian journal, in which some cleric or do-gooder was telling Christians that it's time to loosen all the old rigidities of marriage and the family and to cast a compassionate eye on the prisoners of such rigidities, calling for this in the name of love in order that further generations of worry-wracked youngsters could be spawned in the name of love. Meanwhile, it's interesting, isn't it, that while we get rid of disciplines in that field, we, we acquire them in other... I mean, <laughs> the wearing of seat belts in a car, of course, is now compulsory. I mean, whether you kill an unborn child is a matter of free choice, but not whether you strap yourself into your car. Um, Well, the most desperate need of Christianity today is that current secularism should be demythologized. For its myths hold in captivity those we will bring into the Church and they have infected thinking even within the Church itself. Anyone with any historical sense must surely be rather uneasy to reflect, that somewhere between 1950 and the, and the present day, moral codes accepted in Christendom by the informed and the wise for centuries were suddenly discovered to be erroneous. I'm thinking of the ethics affecting sex relationships, marriage, perversion, abortion, and so on. It will be nice some day to have time to examine systematically the secular myths that have been manufactured, and farmed off on believers and unbelievers alike, in order to ease the shift from traditional morality. I'll just take one instance in conclusion. Take the way we now talk of marriage as something which two people possess, but which may turn sour like some foodstuff kept too long or left out of the fridge. Their marriage has irretrievably broken down, we say, as though the thing were a private car or a motor bus or something. There it is at the roadside, its cylinder seized up and its transmission done for. The only thing to do is to have the thing towed into the scrapyard. Or they're having trouble with their marriage. It isn't working properly, as though it were an air conditioning system that had let them down. Or they're desperately trying to do something about their marriage. It's on the rocks. I don't think they'll be able to salvage it. Well, I know and know the there lots and lots and lots of tragic cases who need only sympathy. But in fact, if we are to keep our heads clear, is there really any such thing as a marriage that can go right or wrong? There are two people who have made certain vows and can keep them or break them. There are two human beings who can live in harmony or fight like cats and dogs. But if they choose to quarrel, is there in any sense a thing that has broken down? Of course there isn't. Marriage itself cannot fail anyone. Men and women can fail to live up to it, as they can fail in dozens of other ways. But failure is their failure. Suppose a Christian was beginning to lapse from his Christian duties and to have doubts about the faith. Would he say, I'm having a bit of trouble with my baptism... It isn't working, as it should. (laughs) I think I'll have to swap it for another model. Notice what the effect is of pretending that there is this rather unmanageable thing, marriage. We picture two innocent people feverishly trying to do something to preserve and protect a common possession that is getting out of hand. Something like a pet dog that has turned unruly and started to snap in this way we mentally shift responsibility from the shoulders of free human beings both parties may wring their hands over a misfortune that has descended upon them through no fault of their own all that care we lavished on our marriage and look how it has let us down, what a sad thing for both of us, goodbye better luck next time when marriage is not like that men and women are not like that Love is not like that. But notice, this is the point I wanted to end, but notice how. In this little example of how we now talk of marriage, the the rhetoric of secular permissiveness is all about being yourself, making your own choices and doing your own thing, your own thing, while the practical application of permissiveness is to shift responsibility from human beings not onto other human beings, but onto imaginary things like marriage. This is the abdication of human freedom and responsibility, grotesque in its thoroughness. In this seemingly rather trivial matter, the way we use words in a familiar series of expressions, well, it provides an excellent little example of the way our thinking is secularized stage by stage. Shifting personal responsibility from men and women is a crucial process in de-Christianizing our society. With all the talk of choice, men and women are virtually deprived of choice and made the victims of chance. Lucky men and women stumble into a happy, durable relationship, while unlucky ones come away from the same market with a thing which at first sight looks just as sound but turns out on close acquaintance to be a dud model that wouldn't last even the most noble pair a 12-month. You see what the message of this is. The secularist pseudo-morality, which claims to be freeing, liberating us, is in fact enslaving us. And of course, there is only one power which can deliver us from the bondage of permissiveness. You know what that power is.